When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. The documentary 20 Feet from Stardom features artists like Bruce Springsteen, Mick Jagger, and Darlene Love paying tribute to the backup singers who shaped some of their most iconic songs. The Spectacular Now stars Shailene Woodley as the good girl and Miles Teller as the effortless charmer in a film about young love and growing up. Both films are now available on demand. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Coming up on this episode of SVU, Matt and I put on our berets, eat some baguettes, and prove that we clearly know nothing about French culture beyond the stereotypes from Pepe Le Pew cartoons as we review Francois Truffaut's Shoot the Piano Player. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered around a common theme and inspired by Shoot the Piano Player. We were going to do a really deep and incredibly comprehensive study of the French New Wave. But then we realized the amount of work that would require. And besides, Allison has been away on a business trip that she's going to probably talk about a little bit later. I've been under the weather. I think I caught some of your rabies, Allison. It's going around. It's going around. So instead, we're complimenting our usual listener's choice review with some host's choice recommendations. In other words, some titles we've recently streamed or rented and wanted to talk about. But first up, as usual, is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand. Allison, what are our picks this week? Well, my three picks of them, two of them are films that I've been really looking forward to catching up with. They're from last year. And one is a new film featuring a really intriguing lead acting choice. So let's start with that one. That is Cold Comes the Night. Uh, I haven't seen this one yet. It just came out in theaters as well. It is now available on demand. And it's directed by Z Chun, who directed a, a smaller indie that I really liked called Children of Invention that was kind of based on his childhood. This is his new film, and it has uh, Brian Cranston in what I believe is his first role, at least that we're seeing, post-Breaking Bad, as a Polish criminal and Alice Eve as a single mother who's running a seedy motel into which Cranston's character checks in. Uh, I'm very curious about what's going to happen next in Cranston's career. He's obviously amazing in Breaking Bad, has gotten a lot of acclaim for it, but having a long-term role like that can sometimes uh, be a bit of a burden as well in that audiences and casting directors have trouble seeing you as something else they're gonna want to see him cooking meth and everything exactly or playing you know fathers with really dark sides Mm -hmm. or something like that but cranston already overcame one lasting role that's true in malcolm in the middle right so 
I'm sure if anyone can shake I, off. I'm pretty sure he cooked meth on that one too, though, right? It was just off screen. It was in the DVD extras. Right, right. Well, like, it, was, it was implied, I think, by all the wacky antics. Yes. Well, you know, if you, you don't saw, get to do that many wacky <laughs> antics if you're not on meth. If you saw the uh, DVD extra that was snuck online for a little bit from the Breaking Bad box set, it connected the oh, Breaking Bad and Malcolm in the uh, Middle Universes in a way that was pretty entertaining. So, you know, there's probably meth in all of them is the answer to this. Where is the money? It's gone. I see. If you don't find out, I will put bullet in your little girl's ear. It's a it's an Indian noir. Cold comes a night with a great cast. I'm also it's in, I'd be interested to see Alice Eve, who has always been very solid in roles that don't always require her to do much other than to look pretty. No, or uh, stand in her underwear. Or stand in her underwear, yeah. As in the case of That's, Star Trek exactly. Into Darkness. In an incredible act of gratuitous. <laughs> that, gratuitous? That, yes, that, even, that even people involved in making the film apologized for. Allison, yes, and that was an essential scene for that film. Exactly. It was crucial to the plot yes, of um, something. Also, this film features Logan Marshall Green from Prometheus, who is the guy who looks a lot looks like, like Tom, Tom Hardy, Hardy, but is not Tom Hardy. Yeah, he's fake yes, Tom Hardy. Exactly. So there you go. That's already, I'm sold on the cast alone. It's a good, it is a good cast. It is a good cast. So that's Cold Comes the Night. It is now available on demand. Also now available on demand is one of your favorite films. In fact, your favorite film of last year, Short Term 12. Mm. Uh, this is one I didn't get a chance to see in theaters. I When I was at South by Southwest last year, when it was everyone's favorite. Right. That I was recommending of, it and you were like, well, I don't want to see it then. I, I was covering the TV side of things too, unfortunately, sure. so I sure didn't have are. a lot of chance. But, uh, you know, it's one that I've been looking forward to so much and uh, I'm really happy to finally get a chance to see it. Yes. Uh, and I mean, we've already super talked highly about this. recommended. We've already yeah. talked about this and kind of it's uh, it, it's got a great lead role from Brie Larson and just uh, from all accounts, a very nuanced and non condescending look at this care facility for um, foster children. Um, so that's one that check it out. Yes, if, if it's been on your list as well, uh, since it didn't get it didn't open in theaters everywhere. Now is the time to check it out. And finally, uh, In a World is available on demand on January 21st. This is Lake Bell's directorial debut in which she also stars as a woman trying to make it in a world where voiceover work, <laughs> primarily of the old school film trailer sort, right. does not go to female artists. That's right. Which is uh, true in the real world as well. There was, there's the, I think it was Gone in 60 Seconds was the only trailer maybe ever to feature a female voiceover. <laughs> you don't hear them. You, you don't, don't ever. And you don't hear them often in general. They tend there's they tend to only show up in spoofs these days. Mm -hmm. They they've kind of gone out of fashion. The the booming voice of right. God. But it's uh, a film that is set in this universe, which is a really interesting part of the film industry mm. and has a great cast. Lake Bell, I like a lot. She's very funny. And uh, there's also Ken Marino, Dimitri Martin, Nick Offerman. This is a film that was very well received and uh, kind of like one that flew under the radar. So it's another one that I'm really looking forward oh, to Oh, I've seen it. With. It's good. Very charming. Very, it's a nice little romantic comedy. Yeah, if you're in the mood for a romantic comedy... That's a little bit smarter than the usual affair. And yeah, it does have that great backdrop of the world of, of voiceovers and trailers and stuff. And voice coaching as well, right? Yes. yes. Oh, yeah. There's this a, whole yeah. side of, 
of acting and right. performing. But... Her her dad, Lake Bell's character's dad, is like kind of like the other Don LaFontaine, who is like the the classic in a world guy. And so he's in there, and then Ken Marino is sort of like the young, the, the young protege, yeah. yeah, the young protege, and he's sort of like interested in Lake Bell, but also competing with her for jobs. And there's, it's great. It's really, really fun. It's funny, and it's very well done. I, I, I thought it was a great uh, job by Lake Bell. I look forward to seeing uh, what she does next. Yep, and that is available on demand on January twenty first. Okay, so the good news is uh, Allison and I are back in the same room. We're recording things the old-fashioned way. Now that we both have rabies, old, it's fine. Old, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Now that I've caught it, I, there's nothing else to be done. So, uh, Yeah, but old-fashioned as in like three or four years ago, I guess, is old-fashioned now. Sitting in the same room as opposed to doing it over Skype. Right, exactly. So the, the, that's the good news. The bad news was you were actually traveling, and we didn't want to do another episode over Skype after I think three in a row. So we had to wait. So the, this episode is obviously, as you're listening to it, it's a few days late. We apologize for that. But we figured better late and sounding better finally than uh, another one over Skype. So you were at, Allison, where where exactly were you it's the, the last It's the Television days? Critics Association Winter Press Tour. Okay. Does that just roll off the tongue? Yes, it sounds um, great. It's the Television the Television Critics Association, TCA. Let me tell you what I think it is. I've never been. Please. Just from the title. Yes. Say it one more time for Television me. Critics Association Winter Press Tour. This is what I think that is. You tell me if I'm right or wrong. It's a bunch of television critics form a rock band and they tour winter locations so like aspen denver salt lake city park city they they go around touring playing songs that are inspired by television shows yeah but you know then the, the band always breaks up about halfway through so right. i don't well, even know why that's why there's a summer press tour that's where you get back you know together. where you get back together and then right. you do a kind of you tour more reunion. miami exactly. and atlanta that kind of stuff. exactly okay yeah it's actually uh <laughs> twice yearly Lar- really big event. It goes on for two weeks. I've only ever tend to stay for the first week, which is mostly cable. But it's it's all the networks come and they present their new or returning shows, the ones that they think you know need or deserve the attention. So it'll be um, like HBO presenting. You know, at this point, uh, at this True time, Detective. True Detective. They presented seven new things actually because they have a lot coming up. Girls. Uh, girls they did present as well looking uh looking looking, which is actually one that if you haven't really heard of it it's premiering this weekend it's a it's set in san francisco it's about three gay men it sounds a bit like girls with for gay men and and guys it's it's pretty charming it's also directed by andrew haig who did weekend oh and an excellent film film. we both love yes it has a bit of the feel of that i would say have my uh, my uh, my attention and uh, the cinematographer is reed moreno who's done a lot of indie films it looks really beautiful i would say it falls between weekend and girls so figure that out to rationalize that i I think i think it's, it's very promising okay true detective which is Matthew, you know, McConaughey, Matthew McConaughey, Woody Harrelson, Woody Harrelson who were there. Uh, Carrie Fukunaga, who directed Sin Nombre. And, okay. uh, He's the director. Jane Eyre. He directed all eight episodes. It's a complete story, yeah, all so it's like by a, one guy. Right, and it's like almost like a mini-series where yeah. if they do a second season, there'll be a different story, different cast, Exactly, the exactly. Right. So those are both really interesting. Okay, but all the networks come, or most of the networks come. And it's they, still going on as we're recording this. Right. I think today is, was CBS. 
It's a marathon. It's like, you know, you, people just drop like flies. You gave up. You said, I've had enough, and walked away. <laughs> exactly. But only the strong survive only the, the strong TCA. survive to a little over two weeks. And I've never saved for the second half when they start going into most of the big networks and visiting sets, which they do. You know, like there's a oh, set really? visit for uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. planned. Oh, my goodness. And things like that next week. So... It goes into all kinds of places. There's a party on the lot of uh, How I Met Your Mother because it's ending oh. in the bar stage. You oh. know, they have things like that, like crazy events. And it's it's this re- it's really big, and there's a lot of thought put into it. I, I, I mean, this is we don't want to get too off on a tangent and get too inside baseball, but it is fascinating to hear how. I mean, it seems like the 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 TV industry and these channels are really like open and inviting to the critics. There's nothing like a TCA for film critics at all. I mean, the closest you could probably come is maybe a film festival, but that's not everything. That's based on what the festival selects. And even then, the publicists and the the industry, the people there are much more like gatekeepers, keeping as many people as they can away in some cases, as opposed to come in, come in, look at our show, talk to our stars, consider it. Take, you know, like it's a totally different world. Yeah, I think it's because there's so much of an ongoing relationship. If you're a critic, your ongoing relationship is not just with these shows, but with a network, right? Like you Uh are keeping contact with the executives. Um, Actually, one of the most interesting things at TCA, which is essentially the bulk of it is press conferences, right? They just talent from the show will be introduced and they open it to questions. Right. And uh, then they'll do occasional executive sessions, which are fascinating. The head of like Fox, the head of FX will sit there and take questions from on anything. You know, someone will be like, hey, you know, what about this show that was announced three years ago from so-and-so? What is it still alive? What's the status? Yes. Or, you know, why are you dumping all of your, com- like, all of your comedies are over, like, are coming to an end? What's happening? You know? And they give answers as honest as possible, depending on the executive. Right. Which I think, I mean, wouldn't you love to have that in the film industry? The, and again, the only things I can think of that are comparable are, like, press conferences at, like, the New York Film Festival or right. the Cannes Film Festival, which are horrible. Horrible. And, and the questions are usually, like, how much did this movie cost to make? And then, like, just the worst questions you can imagine. Yeah. So it's... It is very different, but it's very interesting. It I, seems it's, like it's it would fascinating. be. Yeah. As much as it is just this incredible marathon of sitting through panel after panel, some shows that you find totally interesting and some shows that you find right. not at all. I mean, and I think the other thing uh, before, and I'll give a few shows that I, I'm, I, found, I heard about that were really interesting, but before we move on, uh, is just the amount, the high-end talent that is now coming as more and more people come through TV. Right. I mean... HBO, no surprise, McConaughey, McConaughey and, and Harrelson. You know, Harrelson. But Julia Roberts was at HBO also wow. for their, um, The Normal Heart, their movie based on the Larry Kramer play that's coming out. Okay. Um, I did an interview with um, Jason Momoa I was telling you about, who is in this new Sundance Conan, series. The yes, new Conan. Conan. The, yes, Conan the Barbarian right. is starring not in Conan, this new... Not Conan, Conan. <laughs> Excuse me, Conan. Yes. Um, you know, like the level Kevin Bacon is starring in the following, you know, he's coming around. A lot of these people who uh, Billy Bob Thornton is a big in deal. Fargo, the FX movie Right, there's a TV adapted. show yeah. version of the Coen Brothers movie yes. Fargo. Not the following the same storyline, but kind of loosely based yes. on the same milieu. Exactly. And, you know, and he talked about it of just being like, if you're an actor now, it used to be that he literally said, it used to be if you did TV, it was, it was terrible. It was a sign that like you were basically on Hollywood squares. <laughs> now, you now know, it's the opposite. It's, yeah, he's like, especially in all of these kind of 
higher budget indie movies slash mid-range dramas mm -hmm. they're just not being made that much anymore in the industry so yeah, tv is kind of taking that that place i'm sitting here and i'm listening to you and i'm, I'm still like trying to like wrap my mind around it and compare it to film and there's and the, no equivalent the other thing yeah. that i'm thinking of is, is interesting because it's so different is comic-con where it's another kind of like trade show sort of thing right. Where the the stars come, like you know, all the big stars, you know, Tom Cruise will show up for his movie, or you know, Johnny Depp, whoever it is, they'll show up, and they'll talk about it. But in that case, you've ne you haven't seen any of the movies they're pr plugging. Right. If at best, maybe you get like a trailer. Right. And that is, you know, it's for thousands of fans in the room. It's not. I'm guessing there's what a hundred people in the room here. It, yeah, it can vary. I mean, during the cable things, it's even thinner. You know, right. like on the the Fox Day, the room is a lot fuller, and it's all critics and journalists. Uh -huh. Whereas at Comic Con, it's you know five thousand nine hundred yeah. fans and maybe a smattering of the critics and journalists and bloggers and whoever that like waited all day. It's yes. to again totally different. It's all about hype. It's all about sort of like manipulating that press to get that like super intense excitement reaction as opposed to uh, sort of trying to get a more measured and thoughtful response. It's just interesting the the, the difference between yeah. the two worlds. This was my third one. I've been to, I went to the one last year, to the summer one and this, and it's, I, they've been really fascinating to me. I have to say, I've really enjoyed kind of figuring them out. So really quickly before yeah, I move Give us on, like one or two I'd things that look Red promising. Road, Red Road, the Red Road, which is on Sundance Channel. Uh, it's created by Aaron Guzikowski, who wrote your favorite movie, Prisoners. Okay. Uh, it is about like a small community outside of New York where there's half the community is, you know, kind of like, a, it's just like a white suburban New York community. And then there's a, this is, this is, there's actually, it's based on a real thing. A, a Native American tribe that are not federally recognized by the government. So it's kind of about these two sides of the community. Um, it stars, or Jason Momoa, I mentioned, is one of the actors in it. Maybe more interesting is that first episode was directed by James Gray. Oh. Yes, in his first TV Oh, I'm very directing. torn here. You've got one of my, but you legitimately one of my favorite directors. Yes, I know, and uh, he's amazing. And, and so, then one of my not so yeah. favorite writers. They uh, doing that. HBO also showed um, kind of not final cuts of the first two episodes of Silicon Valley, which is the comedy about Silicon Valley created by Mike Judge. Whoa! Yes, who was also at TCA, and they showed. I hadn't the, heard about this. Yes, it's coming out in April. And they showed the first, just the pilot, which is all that's been shot so far, of The Leftovers, which is uh, based on the novel by Tom Perota, who wrote Little Children and Election, okay. the two novels yep. that those are based on. And it's uh, Damon Lindelof is the guy who's show running it. Okay. And it's basically about a sort of rapture that happens in which 2% of the world disappears with no apparent pattern as to who gets chosen. Mm -hmm. But it's like... And they get sent to an island. No, you don't know what a, happens. To them. They're hatch. gone. Exactly. They're gone. And it's about what happens to the rest of the world post this happening, right. like uh, several years later. Right. So it's kind of, I, it recalls 9-11 a little bit in terms of just like, it's a bit about grieving and it's a bit about having your worldview completely mm -hmm. shook up. Uh, it's really good. I thought yeah. the pilot was terrific. Okay. Yeah, and I that was, one's called again the leftovers. And the sil you saw the Silicon Valley one too. The Mike the first Judd one was it yeah, funny. It was very funny. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, so, so those, those were all on those HBO? Are HBO. 
Yeah. So basically what you're saying is I, we all need to get HBO. HBO, yes. Well, I mean, technically they're streaming, I guess, if you have HBO Go. Right, but you have to subscribe, have to subscribe. or know someone who will give, someone you, will give, will give you, you their password. Yeah, but I, I will say I was really, especially The Leftovers, I was really impressed by that pilot. So. Okay. All right. Well, it sounds very interesting. I'm sorry we can't all attend, but... Do you think maybe next year when you go, you could make some room in your your like hotel room and just right. all and of us, all the see, listeners? I'll, I'll and just, we all I just... pulled my badge. We'll put it over both of our necks right. and just go in and be like, we're <laughs> units. We podcast together. I think that would be just fine. I <laughs> uh, can't see any problems. All right. Well, let's move on to our cue shots. Uh, we have host choice this time. That's right. So we have no theme at all, basically, is what that means. We right. just wanted to pick some things well, we like. I think as people can recognize there, you've been very busy. It just seemed, you know, it was, it was tough to uh, to get a full theme and do it. Do it right. Do it with as much uh, that it needs but we've been watching things yes. so that's why it seemed to make the most sense to do it this way do you want to start i think you should start all i've right. been talking a lot all right uh i'll start with uh this one this is a movie that i've been watching sort of actually as a background for a piece that i'm finishing up but i'm not really going to be writing much about the movie in the piece so i figured i'm going to talk about it because i enjoyed watching it so much uh, i'd seen it before but uh, I would put this in the category of underrated Martin Scorsese movies, maybe the most underrated, although there's a few that could probably vie for that title. It's 1986's The Color of Money, and you can rent this movie right now at Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, or YouTube, or if you are a Showtime subscriber, uh, it is available for streaming on Showtime Anytime, which is like the equivalent of HBO Go for Showtime. Showtime Anytime. It's streaming on there. Uh, this is a sequel to the the classic film, The Hustler. But if you've never seen The Hustler, you will not be lost at all. It requires no knowledge whatsoever of the film, and really the only way that it's a sequel. I mean, it takes place you know twenty five years later. Is that it stars Paul Newman playing his character from The Hustler, Fast Eddie Felson, uh, twenty five years later, no longer the young uh, brilliant pool player that he was in that movie, The Pool Hustler. Now he's an older guy. He's a uh, he's a liquor salesman, sort of – he's kind of lost his way a little bit, and he discovers this young pool prodigy played uh, in an excellent performance with very large hair by Tom Cruise. And he decides to take him sort of under his wing and on the road and show him the ropes of pool hustling and to sort of teach him how to do it and take him to this big tournament where – the object is to win, but sort of like while you're waiting to play your official tournament rounds, what you're really doing is like hanging out in the green room and hustling people, basically. It's just an excuse to make money. And I have see I'd seen this movie before and enjoyed it, and I, I saw it again uh, earlier this week, and I just – I really love this movie. And I, I'm sort of mystified that its reputation isn't as – high as it as, as i feel like it should be i mean i think just on the technical level alone it is one of the best looking and best shot martin scorsese movies which is saying something because he's martin scorsese i mean the camera moves in this film are just absolutely insane and if you're a, if you're a fan of camera movement in general and, and cool shots trick shots uh trick shots being i guess a pun that i didn't intend in terms of <laughs> there are trick pool shots and there are trick camera shots and perhaps one is there to enhance or uh, Buffett the other, uh, it, this movie is a just a feast. It's 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 porn for uh, people who get off on on trick camera shots. Basically, that might be a real thing. It might be, and I'm <laughs> disturbed if it is. But nonetheless, I was speaking more uh, in, in an exaggerated term, 
So please don't write in and tell me if you are. But <laughs> it is an incredibly well shot movie, and it's a it's a well written movie too. It's written by the uh, uh, novelist uh, Richard Price. It's based on a novel by Walter. Uh, Tevis, but the screenplay is written by the novelist Richard Price, who's written so many great screenplays. Also, so it's a it's a it's a really well written film. It has a lot of great kind of snappy, gritty dialogue. Most of it by uh, Newman, who's very charismatic, who famously won the Oscar for the the movie. Sort of, a lot of people claim, oh, it was like a, uh, a career a career yeah. achievement, a lifetime achievement award. But I actually think he's fabulous in the movie. I think he's incredibly charismatic. I think he has a really fascinating arc over the course of the movie he's uh he's you know at this low ebb and then he starts to take up pool again and you're sort of wondering whether or not that's a good thing for him or not and i actually think the the ending is kind of interesting as well and not necessarily an easy unambiguous ending i think it's kind of complicated too and again just so phenomenal i mean you would think that a pool game isn't necessarily the most exciting thing to film because it's small it's this one little table but you, you will not believe the shots that uh, Scorsese pulls off. Nine ball is rotation pool. The balls are pocketed in numbered order. The only ball that means anything, that wins it, is the nine. Now the player can shoot eight trick shots in a row, blow the nine, and lose. On the other hand, the player can get the nine in on the break, if the ball spread right, and win. Which is to say that luck plays a part in nine ball. But for some players, luck itself is an art. Never seen it. Hugely recommended. Think again. Underrated Martin Scorsese movie. I put it. I put it pretty high up there on the list of of all time Scorsese's. And uh, again, it's called The Color of Money. And it is available for rental on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube, or for streaming if you're a Showtime subscriber at uh, Showtime Anytime. Okay, for my first pick, I'm going to start off with the one that's available for streaming, and it is a classic and one I love, The Apartment, which is currently streaming on Netflix, the 1960 Billy Wilder film. Matt, this is what, in the New York Times review for this, this is what Bosley Crowther wrote about it okay. Bosley Crowther maybe no, not famously uh stodgy curmudgeonly uh you know yes not the most uh courageous of tastes he calls it a gleeful tender and even sentimental film and I don't know what movie he saw <laughs> maybe the there was a man is dark as hell maybe there was a different cut in <laughs> 1960 it's like amazing to me so uh, it's about of course Jack Lemmon as C.C. Baxter who is just a kind of uh, drone in an insurance company in New York. And just the way the insurance company is portrayed is amazing in itself. It's this giant building in which he says in the beginning, 31,000 employees work and his floor is shot just so it seems like this never-ending row of identical desks of which, at which everyone is just kind of flipping through cards and typing on you know machines from nine to five and then they all leave at once it just is incredibly dehumanizing as is the story itself uh, you know it's he is a bachelor who lives in the city and a lot of his the higher-ups in the company have basically been bullying him into using his apartment for their flings and affairs before they go home to the suburbs where they live with their wives and children and he uh, lets him do this because he thinks it'll help him get ahead. They all promise they're going to write really good efficiency reports of him. 
And uh, the other major character in this is played by Shirley MacLaine, Fran, who is an elevator operator who then becomes involved with one of those execs who wants who you know wants to use the apartment. And I, this movie has beyond just like the pleasure of Billy Wilder's you know dialogue and how he films it, just one of these my favorite grim portrayals, quietly grim portrayals of New York. It's just a place where there seems to be so little sympathy, especially for these two characters who are so far down on the totem pole, are largely powerless, and have to just, uh, you know, accommodate people who have a lot more power than they do. And in that, you know, sentimental movie that Bosley Crowther describes, there is a suicide attempt, <laughs> and uh, it, it's works actually perfectly within the context of the what's been happening to these characters. I think it, one of the things that it does so nicely is within this extremely dehumanizing world, uh, which is also summed up really nicely by just, uh, Jack Lemmon is not allowed to go back to his apartment a lot of the times because someone's using it to entertain a girl they picked up at a bar or someone else from the company even. He just sits around in the park where it's freezing no, with nowhere to go, which <laughs> is a particularly nice, sad image of city life. It's just that its acts of kindness and its romance are so unconventional and they're so about sacrificing yourself for someone in these, these, these non-grand sweeping ways uh, that I really like. And uh, Fran and Cece Baxter are just great characters, and McLean and Lemon are great together. Would you mind opening that window? Now, don't go getting any ideas, Miss Kubelik. I just want some fresh air. It's only one story down. The best you could do is break a leg. So they'll shoot me, <laughs> like a horse. Please, Miss Kubelik, you've got to promise me you won't do anything foolish. Who'd care? I would. Why can't I ever fall in love with somebody nice like you? Yeah, well, that's the way it crumbles, cookie-wise. So if this is a movie that you haven't seen yet, perhaps, or you'd like to revisit, I highly recommend it. Also, because it is very bracing, it is not at all just a, a giddy romp, a giddy, a, you know, screwball comedy. It's a great film. The Apartment, it is currently streaming on Netflix. That's a great film. It's a good, has a great last scene, too. Yes, a famous last mention. line. Famous last line, great last scene. But no, not exactly a sentimental film. No, even that last line is actually about basically, you know, brushing the sentimentality off the table. Yeah, I don't, I don't, Bosley, what happened, <laughs> brother? What were you doing? All right, my next film is my streaming pick. Uh, the film is streaming on Netflix. You can also rent it if you don't have Netflix on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. This is a documentary I just didn't really know much about, but uh, was intrigued by the subject, watched on a lark, and I enjoyed it. It's called Drew, the man behind the poster, and it is directed by Eric Sharkey. And the Drew of the title, the Drew of the subject, is Drew Struzan, who is one of the most famous and most influential movie poster artists of the last 20, 30 years, if not all time. He has designed so many posters from, I mean, anytime you think of a beautifully like illustrated poster with uh, 
faces uh, arranged in interesting ways. It's almost always a Drew Struzan poster, uh, you know, like uh, the 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 Star Wars prequels, all Drew Struzan. The re-releases, the special editions of the uh, of the Star Wars movies, him as well. Raiders of the Lost Ark series, Drew Struzan. The Muppets, he did all the Muppets posters. I think the early Harry Potter film posters, he did those as well. Uh, the Police Academy movies, actually, mm. not quite as beautiful, but he's <laughs> he's an incredible. He draws faces in this way that they seem almost photoreal, but somehow like better than photoreal. He like he brings them to life in a way that a regular photograph uh, often, uh, you know, doesn't do. It's been enormously valuable uh, to the selling of the movies that I'm in. I think you got the sense that this was being taken seriously, but there was a true sense of fun to all the daring. So when you look at Harrison Ford in Indiana Jones. You get a feeling of a rush inside you that there's some action in this movie, that there's romance in this movie, that there's excitement, there's mystery, there's danger, all from a piece of paper. That stuff made me want to go see the movie. It's just an interesting movie about his life, his art, and I, I mean, he's a guy whose name I recognize, certainly, and I knew a little bit about, but it, what I really just had liked, uh, to a large extent, was just watching uh, him work you get to see him working and you also get to see him describing his technique and you see also as someone like me who's i mean not artistic in that sense i can't draw to save my life just him describing like the way he can use a pencil or a brush and the the different ways that there are to manipulate those things as opposed to just holding it the way i would hold a pencil if i was writing just you know that it's a tool to be used like he really kind of opens your eyes if you're an idiot like me to to sort of the more uh, adventurous sides of these very basic tools in a way that I found fascinating. And also great just to admire his art. There's so much of it on display here. And uh, they, they, they sort of uh, pull away all of the, the, like, the text, the titles, anything that's on the poster. So you can really just admire the artwork. So the focus is really on the art. And uh, it's beautiful. I mean, is it a fantastic documentary? No. Does it pass the uh, Wilmore test of documentaries? <laughs> uh, I'd say yes, but not by a landslide, not by a huge margin. But I think if you're a fan of his work, if you're a fan of movie posters, if you find the world of movie advertising interesting, I think it's it's well worth a look. I think it's about 90 minutes. It's not a very long film. And you do get this lovely tour through the world of movie advertising and just get to admire this incredible figure who's largely unheralded and has contributed a lot. When you think about it, you know, a lot of these movies that I'm mentioning, you think about those movies, uh, sometimes the very first thing or the second thing you think of is an image from that poster. You know, you think about the, you know, the Temple of Doom. I, I know I certainly think about that great poster for it or the the Star Wars, uh, you know, the reissues, the special editions. Like, I can't think of those movies without thinking of the three posters he did for them. So... Uh, I think he's a he's a guy who's worthy of his own film, and I think the film itself is worthy of the guy. So that's Drew, the man behind the poster, and it's streaming on Netflix or rentable on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. All right. My second pick is a more recent film. It is The Spectacular Now, which we talked about is available uh, on demand and also for rent on iTunes, Amazon, The Usual Suspects. And this is a film uh, directed by James Ponsalt, who did Smashed before then, another film that was really acclaimed for its uh, its uh, performances and also its delicate 
portrayals of difficult characters. And what I, I thought this film did so well was just have this very warm, uh, you know, complex and not at all condescending portrayal of teen characters in a realistic way that I don't think you often see in movies. And you have two great leads here who are both on their way to stardom, like we're kind of watching it happen. But Miles Teller, who I think I remember even calling him out for his performance in Rabbit Hole uh, on the old podcast. He kind of, I, I thought, did a, an amazing job in a smaller role in that movie. And Shailene Woodley, who, you know, has got a lot of attention for The Descendants and who's been starring in bigger and bigger things as well. Uh, what I really liked about the relationship between the two of them as it unfolds is the ways in which it's it's easy and isn't uh it's complicated by the things that uh, you know teenagers uh sometimes have happened to them including the fact that uh miles teller's character sutter is still kind of half expecting to get back together with his ex who's played by brie larson and in another really nice portrayal of a teen character and teller is just really great at portraying this guy who is basically peaking in high school that's what's happening to him he's uh, really charming he's really fun at parties he already drinks too much he drinks all the time and he's definitely poised to become the guy who just stays at home and works part-time and drinks all the time and slowly falls into just full-time alcoholism. But at the moment of the film, he's still extremely charming and still also has the possibility of changing a path. And uh, Shailene Woodley is just, you know, plays a character who has an equally difficult uh, home life, but also has kind of chosen uh, another path, has chosen to kind of, you know... To, to work hard in school, to go on to college. And I like that you it wasn't easy to just pigeonhole these two characters. She, you know, is in extracurricular activities. She's in the French club and she likes sci-fi novels, but she's also not, you know, it, their relationship is not some kind of social leap from from various groups in the cafeteria. It's more about someone who really hasn't thought about the future at all and someone who really has and is willing to kind of help help uh help him kind of figure out what's next if he's willing to go go with that jesus i must have fallen asleep here let me help you up where the hell's my car i don't know do you live around here, Sutter? How do you know my name? You go to the same school. You wouldn't uh, know who I am. I know you. Uh, uh. <laughs> I'm Amy. Amy Finicky. That's what I was going to say. Nice to meet you, Amy. So I, I thought the film just had some... Like, all of the scenes between the two of them as that relationship developed were really great. And it's just shot in this... Uh, you know, with this backdrop that's almost um, kind of nostalgically summer, speaks to like summer coming and and just having all of this time to, in between uh, teenagerdom and adulthood. But I, I feel like it does maybe shortchange 
uh, Shailene Woodley's character a little bit towards mm-hmm. the end. It definitely mm-hmm. becomes the story of Sutter and right. his, how he, you know, comes of age a bit. Uh, that said, it does include a great scene or a set of scenes with Kyle Chandler playing uh, Sutter's dad mm-hmm. in a real change of pace from the character he played on Friday Night Lights, who was a great dad. He is not playing a great dad here. And I, I just, I thought that this was such a nice, smart portrayal of teenagers. And I, I think it really deserves a, a lot of attention for that because that isn't managed that often. And, and at the very least, they're usually given a real sheen of, uh, you know. Sheeniness? Sheeniness. Or, you know, a sheen of like Hollywood or, or the usual stereotypes. And uh, they, Miles Teller and Shailene Woodley, are both good-looking people, but they also look like they exist in a real world of high school, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I really liked seeing that. So that is a Spectacular Now. It is available for rent on iTunes and Amazon, and it is available on demand. Listener's Choice Review Time here on SVU. On our last episode, we gave you the choice of three classics of the French New Wave that we, to our, our deep, deep shame and embarrassment, have never seen. Jean-Luc Godard's Masculine Feminine, Eric Romer's Claire's Knee, and Francois Truffaut's Shoot the Piano Player. It was a three-way new wave off, uh, and Francois Truffaut came out on top with 47% of the vote, ahead of Masculine Feminine's 25%, and Claire's Knees, Claire's Knees, that's not easy to say, 27%. All right, so Shoot the Piano Player. This was Francois Truffaut's second film after his landmark debut, The 400 Blows. Charles Aznavour stars as Charlie, a piano player in a seedy Paris dive. But Charlie also has a past as a completely different person, a classically trained piano player. So why did he change his name and how did he wind up in this bar? Truffaut teases out the answers over the course of a thriller that is equally funny and melancholy. Now, shoot the piano player and the 400 blows and the other movies in our poll and... Uh, quite a few others, completely changed the world of film forever as part of the French New Wave. So my question to you, Allison, is this. Watching Shoot the Piano Player for the first time in 2014, did you see what made it such a game changer? Did it make a big impact on you? Did you like it? Or has Shoot the Piano Player aged into a movie that is more important in a historical perspective, than it is entertaining today? Ooh, that's a good question. I did like it. I think that without knowing the context of it, I'm not sure that I would have latched onto it as something that I would describe. A hallmark of yes, world cinema. Exactly. And, you know, I think part of it is it's such, it's like this very French dream of an American, I think, I believe, American noir story. Yeah, a it's novel based, based on an American on, novel. But in this, it's in in this way where all of the rhythms are kind of off deliberately and mm-hmm. all of the pacing is unusual. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that there's something certainly interesting there, but it does feel like a statement of saying like, look at how we can look at how we can kind of take 
this Hollywood, like these things from Hollywood and like take them seriously in a way, you know, or almost like reclaim them and use them in a way to prove their worthiness mm -hmm. uh, rather than, you know, I, I don't know how to put it other than that. I, I, fe I felt vaguely academic in that way mm -hmm. of being aware of what it was doing and its relationship to say Hollywood films and French film. So that was certainly there. That said, I really liked the swings in genre it took as it went along, especially as seen through the three women in it. He kind of has three, these three relationships in which he seems almost three completely different men. Mm. He is this shy man who can't even uh, hold Lena's, the waitress's hand in the, when he's in the dive bar, he's working as a piano right, player and he right. he's too shy to like make a move. And then he has this relationship with a, a prostitute who's kind of helping him care for his brother in which he's not at all shy. Right. And then we see a flashback to his relationship with his wife, which is this kind of domestic drama in which they're just hurting each other. Right. Uh, and that combination was interesting. Mm -hmm. But I, what did you make of those swings in tone between kind of comedy, noir, and then, you know, I don't know, drama? I, I enjoyed them, but I, I think I'm pretty much on the same page with you in terms of, yeah, it does feel a little bit slight, and it does feel a little bit like an exercise to me in some in some ways. You know, you don't really get a great grip on the characters, in part because Truffaut's constantly kind of changing the goalposts in a way that is kind of fun. Like, the main character of the movie isn't even in the first couple of scenes. Uh, the, the, the sort of the first character we meet is actually his, like, kind of degenerate brother who kind of literally like falls into the, the movie in the opening, and then we follow him as he's talking to somebody else who vanishes from the movie, and then he kind of goes to see his brother, and then the brother is the piano player who becomes the main character. And it, it, the movie kind of does that. It, it kind of follows these digressions in a kind of pleasurable way, but also in a way that keeps it as sort of a very enjoyable exercise, entertainment, and doesn't really delve too deeply into the characters. You know, you're, I agree, you're sort of uh, left wondering who really is Charlie or Edward or whoever he is, uh, I mean, maybe he doesn't really know. Maybe we're not supposed to care, and we're just supposed to enjoy it. And I have to say, I did enjoy it. But yeah, I, I, I pretty much agree with you that um, it's it's more successful as a sort of a lark, and it doesn't feel like a masterpiece. But I guess part of what made it, you know, important at the time was that it was, you know, almost experimental and so free and so loose and. There is something kind of refreshing about the way that it breaks, you know, it tells such a conventional story in a very unconventional way, which I think is is the thing that's still kind of valuable about it today is, uh, you know, even if you've never read the book that it's based on, you've seen this story or a story like it told so many times that it's 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 refreshing to see it told in this way that's, uh, you know, that is full of digressions and also very clearly like sort of drunk on movies. There's so many movie references I'm sure I only picked up on half of them. You know, it kind of reminded me in its own way of almost like a, a Tarantino movie, really. Yeah. Um, because it is so, I mean, that, you know, that long uh, flashback digression that you mentioned with the wife. I mean, I was like, oh, we're, we're suddenly we're in Casablanca. You know, it's like, and I think there's a lot of things like that we could probably mention. So I can see the importance of it. I wouldn't certainly rate it amongst the movies that I, I find to be the greatest of all time. Uh, but I, I guess I can see the importance, and I enjoyed watching it. It, it certainly is is worth worth a watch. It's only eighty minutes. 
I mean, it is. It goes it's, very. It, yeah, it's, yeah, it's fluff. It's very, very well made fluff. It, yeah, I, I felt that the. It's interesting that you use Tarantino as a reference, and in some ways, it does feel like a, just the references to movies to different movies was not as interesting to me as the moments in which it took those digressions. Mm-hmm. I love that that conversation that the brother has right in the beginning of the movie. He's running somewhere very urgent, like so right. to the point where he runs into like a lamppost. A lamppost, yep. And then he walks with the man who kind of helps him up. He just walks with him, t- takes his time. They chat about love and about uh, the man's wife. And then as soon as they kind of wander off their separate ways, he starts running again. Right. But there's no urgency at all in the conversation. He's very happy to chat with a total stranger and like have a very pleasant, uh, you know, kind of uh, going around about philosophies of love and, and when you fi- when he fell in love with his wife. And I like that at a certain in a certain scene where two characters are basically being kidnapped they're in the car and then they start talking about women as well and love and about uh different types of underwear people wear eventually right. the well, conversation they're misogynistic goes to. too they're just saying horrible things about well, women they, he, they go back and forth right between being like i want to i think at a certain point the guy says i want to marry every every woman that i meet and then they start talking and then i just want to sleep with them yeah and then kick them out mm-hmm. but i feel like there is a little bit of that divide between the two the two women in the present day part of the story right like one of them one of them is literal whore. The right. other one is uh, the one that the guy can't even bring himself to hold her hand. Right. Right. Like that's not, that's deliberate and there, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I mean, what did you think of its portrayal of women? They're a large topic of conversation in the yeah, film. Topic of conversation, but probably not much more than They're that, all I symbolic. Guess. Yeah. <laughs> symbolic. They're kind of props in a lot of ways. Although yeah. the, the one from the, uh, the bar, Lena, I mean, she does sort of play a very important role in the plot, but, that's sort of as far as it goes. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think they really are there more as as symbols and and yeah, things to further the plot and and visual symbols too. The fact that he's like you know, there's very similar scenes with him in bedrooms or in beds with all of them, and and like you mentioned that we get to see him as this different person with all these different women. I think is is very much deliberate. Uh, yeah, I. I'm not sure how much more there is to say. Like, well, what did you think of the the setting of Paris? I what I, the one thing I did like is that you have Paris and he's or the city that the, right that he's in mm-hmm. and this kind of gritty urban life. But then when he goes home, which yes. is he has his family. That's the reason that he's like doomed to be in trouble this whole time. And he goes home and it's like this snow globe world. It's a basically. cabin in the woods, yes. but it's snowy and yeah, it seems <laughs> it's like, like it's a different like, universe entirely. Right. It seems very, very, very old. Yeah. That's yeah. It's a, an, another strange. I'm, I was wondering like, what movie is this from that? I'm not quite getting the reference. That was sort of my gut feeling about that. That strange world of the, of the right They're They're, they're brothers, the two brothers, they're criminals their parents are still around, but they have they've like hidden them somewhere or made them live in the town by themselves. Yes, they send them to the village. I have to admit, like... I was a little mystified by that whole thing. <laughs> I didn't really follow what was going on there. I was a little confused. Yeah, it was I I did like that it was so not just that his like where he came from is a different world. It seemed like it was literally a different world. Right. But the the sort of climax that takes place there I thought was fantastic. Was and I thought it was really shot. well shot. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of you know, like, uh, there's a lot of, I mentioned the movie influences, a lot of Hitchcock in the movie, too. And some of those, 
you know, he's kind of a classic wrong man, the the Charlie character, and that he's got multiple identities. He's mistaken. He's, you know, he's kind of held up by these guys. He hasn't done anything wrong, but he's held up by these guys. And then there at one point is a is a murder that's committed that's sort of accidental, but he has to go on the run. And, you know, it, it definitely, again, I feel that uh, sort of movie mashup, movie drunk kind of feeling going through all of that and and the way those sequences are shot is is you know kind of shows Truffaut's knowledge of cinema and the, you know that he was kind of a a very well uh, well informed student of these films because he he does a great job i mean just the scene with the guys fighting and and the chase scene that leads into that like fight in the alley and the knife and the use of of camera and and editing to show the knife and cutting to the knife and cutting to the hand and the, and the two guys fighting and then the hand, the arm being raised you know all of that just goes you know that this guy's been paying attention you know obviously Truffaut was a film critic and then became a filmmaker you just see that he's been paying attention he understands the medium he knows what works on a technical level and he is putting it to excellent use in this film yeah. Um, David Ehrenstein, by the way, says that the mountain cabin is right out of High Sierra. So there you go. I've never seen High maybe Sierra. Maybe that's the reference. I've never that. seen it, but there you go. Yeah. It does have, I mean, the, the, I'd say probably the things that I enjoyed most in terms of things that just felt fresh to me about the film were the, those scenes. I, you know, you mentioned the fight scene and that, even that scene has a moment where it's, or it starts and there's like a chase and then there's, they kind of sit down and have a conversation for a while. And mm-hmm. that tendency to almost slip out of genre for a moment is probably the thing that I found most charming right. about, about this. But, but yeah, it isn't, it isn't a film. I've, I read several of the criterion essays about this before going into it, just because I was curious to see what, you know, uh, different people's takes on this. And I felt like no one actually, there are definitely like deep reads into it or like people who kind of see a lot of existential angst in it that I don't know that I do see. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, what I saw in it was, you know, everything we've already said that it's a guy kind of just breaking apart the rules of cinema and, you know, like that, a, the you know, a crime story has to be serious and can't have digressions about love or comedy. I mean, there's a, one of my favorite moments in the movie is a, is a parody kind of spoofy thing that's straight out of like the Zucker brothers. Granted, this is far before. So the Zucker brothers technically would be straight out of this. But when the guy says like, if I'm lying, may my, may my mother drop dead. And then there's an, a cut to a woman, an old woman like dropping on the floor. I yeah. mean, that's hilariously funny and it comes out of nowhere. Sure. And, it's a you know it's like something in a Zucker Brothers movie, well, or even the scene where he's saying like his voiceover, and the voiceover is funny in that it's often it's, it's so serious, yes. but then it's used for comedy sometimes. Mm-hmm. And there's the when he's walking with Lena, and he's like, "Think of a way to make her laugh." Think and like just the face he's making as he's right. doing this makes, makes her, her laugh, laugh, which was was cute. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's what uh, ultimately I took away from it was just sort of like the playfulness of it, yeah. just the the sense of fun. Do you think that now that the film that is basically an homage to many other films is its own subgenre. Do you think that takes away a little bit of the novelty of shoot the piano player for you? I mean, yeah. I mean, I think that was sort of what I was getting at with my opening question to you is just that, you know, I think we can recognize that this was very novel at the time, but yeah, it is something that, you know, I mean, and not only is it not like not novel, it's mainstream now, like so many movies and TV shows, that's, you know, something that, you know, like Quentin Tarantino is, it, I guess, 
I don't know, technically an indie filmmaker. He started as an indie filmmaker, but his movies make hundreds of millions of dollars and they play to very mainstream audiences. And he's essentially doing this, you know, like the pastiche of genres and and tones. The combination of the high and the low. Right, right. Right. Making high art out of low art and combining drama and comedy and violence and kind of blending them all together and playing with tone and theme. Uh, Yeah, I think it does to some degree. You know, I could easily see, you know, a, a, a film student being shown, you know, like a freshman year film student in film school watching this movie and being like, I don't like what's the big deal. I don't you know, like because, it, you know, it's 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 pleasures are to some degree subtle and it does look like a lot of movies they've probably seen. But what they need to keep in mind is that this one came first and a lot of those other movies are inspired by this one and by the sort of sweeping changes that movies like this helped kind of usher into the world of film. So that is Shoot the Piano Player, and it is streaming now on Hulu+. Plus. Okay, let's wrap things up with Behind the Eight Ball, our segment where we recommend some new titles that are on streaming, some uh, listener recommendations that you've sent in to us over email, and one random film chosen blindly by number from our My Lists. Allison, you're going to go first this time. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. Let's start with three new titles. All right. First up is a film that, as we're recording this, was just added to Netflix today. Like just this in the last 10 minutes? Just this last 10 minutes. Whoa. I was just sitting here while you were talking. I was going to say. Listening. I that was why? Refresh, refresh, <laughs> refresh. Yeah. That's why. And then every once in a while, I'll make it kind of an agreeable noise so you keep talking. That's how we normally record this podcast. <laughs> Um, so the film is The Act of Killing uh, from director Joshua Oppenheimer. And it is, uh, and also I should mention, Christine Sin and uh, an anonymous co-director. There are uh, several people who worked anonymously on this film for their own safety. They had to be listed anonymously. But it is, uh, as I'm sure you've heard of this film already, it is a film about Indonesia and these uh, mass killings that happened. And uh, the because the uh the government that had led them to happen is still in place the people who did the actual killing right right uh they are still around and they're not ashamed of what they did and uh oppenheimer has them reenact these these things that they did in different film genres which they happily do and it starts to lead them to reconsider actions that they previously didn't seem to feel any guilt over it's it's a film that is impossible to really find comparisons for. It does feel like something that's new and powerfully disturbing and uh, and and really something else. If you know this film has gotten plenty of acclaim, I don't need to tell you uh recommend it any more than that, but it is it is a difficult one to watch, certainly, and about very difficult topics. That said, it is one that you definitely should watch and it is now available on Netflix. New to Crackle is Shakes the Clown. This is Bobcat Goldthwait's directorial debut from 1992. This is before he started having success in the indie film circuit with, uh, you know, Sleeping Dogs Lie, Stay, uh, and back in, I think that was 2005, 2006. uh, And he stars in the film as well as an alcoholic birthday clown on a highly competitive and embittered clown circuit that he said is a parallel to the stand-up scene he was a part of at the time. Hmm. Uh, famously called by the Boston Globe, and Scorsese later quoted this, the Citizen Kane of alcoholic <laughs> clown movies. <laughs> that is available on Crackle. Uh, 
And new to Hulu is a TV series, The Bridge. This is the original version of the TV series that was recently remade by FX in the U.S., uh, the story of a body that is found on the border between two countries. Detectives from either side have to work together to sol- solve what becomes a serial killer case. This series has actually been remade twice already. The original version, which is the one I'm, I'm recommending new to Hulu, is a uh, Swedish-Danish co-production. And the FX version was set between the U.S. and or Texas and Mexico. There's also uh, French-UK The Tunnel which recently finished uh, in the UK and France. So this is an idea that has seized the imagination enough that Mm. uh, different countries have remade it. Though I should point out that the FX version is the only one that is not an international co-production between the two countries that are involved. All right. How about two listener recommendations? Okay, first up, we have one from Neva W., who says, I'd like to recommend James Marsh's new film, Shadow Dancer. Marsh is more known for his documentaries, but I was very impressed and surprised by the film, which follows a British agent as he forces a female member of the IRA to be an informant. Marsh manages to keep the tension high, as he did in Man on Wire, as it becomes harder and harder to tell who you can trust. Plus, it's nice to see something that reminds you that Clive Owen is an actor I'd forgotten. So that is currently available on Netflix. Ouch! Clive Owen getting a little... That's not just something that you gaze at and admire. Oh, okay. I guess it was... I don't know. Uh, That's just how I read it. (laughs) Anyway, uh, another recommendation from Ross, who says... I saw Prisoners recently, and at first it seems similar to French-Canadian 2010 movie Seven Days. The French title translated is The Seven Days of Retaliation, directed by Daniel Gru. But where Prisoners becomes preoccupied with plot twists and loses its ideas and characters, Seven Days is profound, daring, and open-minded in its approach to the familiar themes of revenge and justice. Be warned that it is incredibly violent, but it's worth it. It's on iTunes. Okay, and how about... Uh, the random film from your mileage. You gave me number 60, which is Burke and Hare. Ah. This is the John Landis 2010 mm-hmm. film starring Simon Pegg and Andy Serkis as the titular characters who were, in, they were real characters. In the 19th century, they committed a series of murders so they could sell the cadavers to medical schools. Great you know, talent involved. This was not particularly well received, nope. which is why it's been sitting in the middle of my my list yeah. for so long. I think it's the last movie John Landis directed too. I think so. It? He has not had a good time in the industry of late, no. which is you know surprising. But no. no. All right, Matt, are you ready? Yes. Okay, three new picks. Okay, first up, what is in my book one of the greatest documentaries of all time it's gimme shelter directed by albert and david mazels and charlotte zwerin uh the rolling stones invited the mazels to film their 1969 tour of america uh little knowing they were bringing them along to one of the most infamous and tragic rock co- concerts of all time the altamont free concert in san francisco uh, the footage of the stones performing is incredible but there's a lot more to the movie than that which i will not spoil if you have not seen it it is amazing you should check it out that's gimme shelter on hulu plus uh next up one of the all-time great westerns howard hawks's rio bravo which is now streaming on amazon prime it stars john wayne dean martin and ricky nelson as a trio of unlikely heroes forced to team together to fight off a gang trying to free one of their members from jail it has incredible performances from all three leads and it's got fantastic Howard Hawks staging and direction. It's fabulous. It's exciting. It's funny. And if you get me drunk enough at a bar, I will sing My Rifle, My Pony, and Me. 
So that's Rio Bravo, available on Amazon Prime. And finally, what I really consider, Allison, the Rio Bravo of our generation, The Last Stand, available now on Netflix. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger's long-awaited return to uh, starring roles. He plays a—it really is kind of like Rio Bravo, actually. He plays a small-town sheriff. He's protecting his town from a drug lord and his uh, minions— uh, to be perfectly frank and honest, I, it's not as good as Rio Bravo. <laughs> uh, it's not a great film. Frankly, there's not enough Arnold in it. He kind of disappears for uh, some long stretches. And the supporting cast, including uh, Forrest Whitaker, kind of gets a little bit too much screen time, in my opinion. No offense to Forrest Whitaker, but just in this movie, I, it's an Arnold. It I doesn't, see... Yeah, it doesn't seem like a genre that plays to Forrest Whitaker's strengths. No, I give, me, give me more Arnold. Give me more Arnold. So uh, the stuff that works, though, I think it works reasonably well. And it's really, you know, ideal Netflix viewing. It's fun. It's dumb. And you'll be glad you didn't spend money to see it when it's over. So that's The Last Stand, available now on Netflix. Two recommendations. All right. First up is a recommendation from listener Will H. He says, if you'll allow me to bring the tenor of the podcast down a few pegs, a possibility I find impossible to conceive, <laughs> Allison. Uh, Will says, I just watched a movie on Netflix Instant, and I feel compelled to share. It's a, scrapid, it's a scrappy little indie period piece called <gasps> Ginger Dead Man 3 Saturday Night Cleaver. <laughs> Don't worry, you don't need to have seen the first two to follow the plot. Good to know. It's the same story of a bloodthirsty gingerbread man who is sprung from maximum security pastry prison by misguided animal activists and time travels back to a 1976 roller disco beauty pageant that we've seen a million times before. But the fun is really in the execution, featuring an extended carry pastiche Gingerbread Slaughter, and a cameo by Lizzie Borden. I highly recommend it to all bad movie lovers. Allison, can you do me a favor? Sure. While I read the next one, can you look up? Because I'm pretty sure this guy just made up this movie and it doesn't exist. Make sure it's real? Yeah, make sure it's real. Because this is insane. Ginger Dead Man 3, Saturday Night Cleaver. It's streaming on Netflix. Netflix. Is what... uh... It's definitely in IMDb. Okay, it's in IMDb. All right. All right. Well, while you're looking it up, let's get the other listener recommendation. This one is actually from a listener named Mario in Glendale, California, and he's been emailing us because uh, he says, I'm biased as my brother directed the film, but I recommend Big Ass Spider. It's really funny, and the effects are very good. It stars Greg Grunberg and Lombardo Boyer, and they have great chemistry. Think Ghostbusters and Arachnophobia. So that is... Big Ass Spider. It's available for uh, rental, download, purchase on all the usual suspects, Amazon, iTunes, that kind of thing. Allison, do we have an official verdict? Ginger Dead Man 3, Saturday Night Cleaver? Yeah, I'm looking at the poster. It's here. Definitely. I see it. It's on Netflix. Ginger Dead Man 3, it, Saturday Night of, Cleaver. I would say it, it's, it recalls Chucky, like a kind His of like face, poster for face, Chucky. Yeah. yeah. Except it's on... A gingerbread man with a little bow tie. And it says, after cleverly escaping the Maximum Security Research Institute of Homicidal Baked Goods, which is a thing, the ginger dead man stumbles upon a time machine and finds himself sent back in time where he slaughters the contestants of a 1970s roller boogie contest. It is as described. It is. And, you know, these are the kind of genre le- or franchise leaps that take the leprechaun to Vegas and then to space. Right. Matt. That's right. Well, I think that's a great combination. Big Ass Spider and Ginger Dead Man 3, Saturday Night Cleaver, make it a double feature. 
All right, and one from your my list. You gave me number five on my my list, and this time that is Where the Buffalo Roam, Art Linson's film about gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson. The movie doesn't have a great reputation, but I like Hunter Thompson, and I love Bill Murray, and this is a Bill Murray movie I've never actually seen, so... I noticed recently it had popped up on Netflix, so I added it to my my list. Allison, are you ready now to uh, to go through our listeners' choice options for our next episode? I am. We've got three newer, new-ish movies this time, correct? Um, well, one is not that new, but we've are. got two newish movies and one older movie. Yes, is that correct? That is correct. That's good. I'm well prepared for this show. Why don't you uh, give us our first option? All right. Well, let's start off with the not newish movie. Your first choice is The Keep which is available for streaming on Netflix and Amazon Prime. This is the 1983 Michael Mann horror film slash, I don't know, World War II Fantasia in which uh, it's World War II. The German army occupies an uninhabited castle in Romania and they unleash an, a dangerous entity there, Radu Mossasar. And... Uh, as you do as you do a Jewish historian is retrieved from a concentration camp to help them figure out what's going on as you do and it goes on from there Uh, apparently the versions that are on streaming don't have the Tangerine Dream soundtrack that the original theatrical did Uh, it was also cut from three hours to like one and a half for theatrical but this is also this is not available on DVD it's not it has not been traditionally the easiest movie to find and it is supposed to be strange as hell and Michael Mann Mann is a great director and I'm curious to see it so it's uh, you know one of those oddities it sounds very interesting The Keep available for streaming on Netflix and Amazon Prime okay our second option is also streaming on Netflix it is one of the newer films it is called The Hunt directed by Thomas Vinterberg it stars Mads Mikkelsen, who is the uh, currently the star of Hannibal, right, on uh, NBC. Uh, you may know him as the villain in Casino Royale. He plays in this film a teacher, this is from IMDb, a teacher who lives a lonely life all the while struggling over his son's custody. His life slowly gets better as he finds love and receives good news from his son, but his new luck is about to be brutally shattered by an innocent little lie, and I believe he's accused of a crime. Uh, I don't know if it's a spoiler or not to say what it is. I don't think it's a spoiler. I know what it is, but you know what? I won't even spoil. He's accused of a crime, and it's sort of like snowballs out of control. It's the kind of crime that people do not shrug off. Correct, and it sort of completely changes the way everyone in town sees him and how his life is sort of irreversibly changed from this lie. So uh, it it came out last year, got very good reviews, appeared on some top ten lists. I guess we both missed it, and we're both looking forward to catching up with it. So that is The Hunt. Available for streaming on Netflix. And, uh, directed, I think, I don't know if you mentioned, by Thomas Vinterberg. Yes. yes. Uh, Who is, I like a lot. So The Celebration. Yeah, The Celebration. And a bunch of other good movies. Okay, and what's the option third, three? Yes, the third in our The series is The Square, which is the new film from Jahan New, I don't know, New Jaim, I guess. I, new Jaim, I'm sorry for the slaughtering the director's name. She directed Control Room. Uh, amongst other docs. This is one about the Egyptian Revolution of 2011. It premiered at Sundance last year in 2013, and then she reworked and updated it for its later screenings at the New York and Toronto film festivals, where it kind of obviously as 
things have continued to happen. And, the revolution you know, revolves yes, and uh, Egypt has continued. Yes, a lot has continued to happen in Egypt, which is, I mean, in itself a really interesting thing in, in a documentary that it can be this living thing that continues to be changed and updated. So anyway, it's, uh, as, we're, as we're recording this, it's still shortlisted for an Oscar, but by the time this comes out, the Oscar nominations will be out, so you'll know if it's nominated for an Oscar. But this was the first documentary to be acquired by Netflix and is an exclusive to them and will go live on Netflix on January 17th. Okay. So The Keep, The Hunt, and The Square. That's right. So which movie, which the movie, should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? Send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Tuesday, January 21st at noon. We'll give you an extra day because we're running a little late here. After that, we'll announce the winner on our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu, and you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which will be up, uh, hopefully, around Tuesday, January 28th. FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the episode. The FilmSpotting SVU remixed theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. And we will be back in two weeks, give or take, with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. And in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming recommendations from you, the SVU listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening.